We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. As usual, stay tuned to the end of the interview where I'll give you some actionable insights that I learned from my guest. These insights are also in the show notes, and all of the show notes are over at theentrepreneurethos.com. As always, thanks for listening. Now, on to my guest for today, Will McKissick, Chief Strategy Officer for MePrism, a company striving to give consumers more control over their personal data. MePrism offers an app that allows consumers to learn how their data is learned, secure it, and control it. Will joined MePrism while he was still studying economics at Middlebury College. His first year of college, he interned at an investment firm, thinking he'd follow the path many of his fellow economics majors were on. Then, after reading an article on Medium and and doing some soul-searching, he realized he wanted to take a different path. In his coursework, he was exploring the issues around the use of private data and serendipitously met the CEO of MePrism, which was working on a solution to the problem. Will explains that he sees MePrism as offering a way for companies and consumers to walk the line between controlling personal data and sharing it with companies. Our personal data is our property, something that no one else can own but us. And up until now, companies have had nearly total free reign to collect and use the data for marketing. MePrism wants to take control over their data back to the consumers how it's collected, used, and shared. With a growing movement for more control over personal data, businesses will need to develop other strategies for marketing. Building trust with consumers will need to become paramount. Will doesn't think he or his company has all the answers, but he sees the entrepreneurial journey about figuring it out as you go. Now, let's get better together. Willis McKissick, welcome to the podcast. All right. Thanks so much for having me on. Really appreciate it. 
Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. And uh, also, thanks for letting me move this. I <laughs> just started a new gig and it's been a little chaotic trying to like move stuff around, you know, like I think I think one of the great things about COVID is it's taught us all to be a little bit more flexible. Like, not, <laughs> yeah, not a problem. Yeah. Flexibility is a little bit more of a hallmark nowadays, but it's just so funny because, uh, yeah, I mean, I booked these shows, as you know, like I think now I'm booking in November, like that's how and it's it's May, right? Like, so I've obviously busy, of course, awesome, popular show, of course, because it's yeah. great, right? And, and, and it's in all... the startup world, things are constantly changing. <laughs> you, you never know where you're going to be in a couple months. So. Oh, 100%. 100%. The only constant is change, as they say. And, uh, but yeah, it's a little bit funny that way. But uh, you are the chief strategy officer over at Me Prism, which I am not going to try to figure out yet because I have a little bit of an idea what it is and I love what you're doing. And it's basically about data. Your data is your property and, and I'm totally bashing it. So we're going to get, <laughs> we're going to get all into that. But as I always like to say to everyone that's ever been on the show, why don't you tell us how you got to do what you're doing today? Sure. Uh, well, so I went to a small liberal arts college in Vermont, Middlebury College. I studied econ and math, uh, very traditional liberal arts education. And uh, I was sort of on the path that most Middlebury, uh, particularly econ majors who uh, also play football. I, I was on the football team at Middlebury, um, tend to be on, which leads to Wall Street and investment banking. Um so that's that's sort of the dream for most of the kids at, at Middlebury in my situation. And uh, I didn't know any better. And that's sort of what most people did. So I, I, I figured out, OK, I better better jump on the train. Um, I did an internship my freshman after my freshman year at a uh, asset management firm called Perella Weinberg Partners. Um, they basically perform an outsourced CIO service with which without going too deep down the finance rabbit hole, um, uh, you can just imagine them as a uh, firm that you'd hire as the uh, chief investment officer rather than hiring your own chief investment officer. And most of our clients were endowments and foundations. Uh, so I, I got exposed to the entire landscape of finance and investing uh, pretty early on in my college career and really enjoyed certain aspects of it, uh, but really couldn't stand other aspects of it. And, and, and I think it was some of those challenges that I dealt with in that job that started to make me kind of consider other things. Um, and it was also about that time that I read a essay called Climbing the Wrong Hill uh, it's it's by Chris Dixon, and I, I recommend it for for anyone who's pretty early in their career or, or even late in their career. I actually told my mom <laughs> to, to read it the other day because she's kind of figuring out what she's going to do next with her life. So, um, and it talks a little bit about this uh, optimization problem, which is really common in in mathematics or uh, computer science, but it uses it as a metaphor. Uh, for career development. So the basic idea is imagine you're on a map and you're trying to find the highest uh, point on that map. Uh, and you can, there, it's really thick fog, so you can barely see in front of you. Uh, how would you find the highest point uh, on the map? And the 
I, I suppose the most basic algorithm or the most basic strategy that you could take would be to just uh, go whichever direction go, goes the furthest up. So just take a step in front of you to go up and continue going up until you reach until any, if you take a step in any direction, you will no longer be going up. And that would be uh, the fastest way to find what's called a local max, which again, going without going too down, far down the math rabbit hole basically just means you'd be at the highest point around you. Um, but you may not be at the highest total point. Um, and, and in reality, if you want to find the highest uh, total point on the map, it's actually uh, more effective uh, and, and algorithms tend to perform better if you add in a little bit of randomness. And actually the best algorithm uh, will drop you at random points on the map and you can climb a little bit from each of those random points. Uh, so how does that have anything to do with career development? Well, it, the, the basic idea is uh, you wanna make sure that you're climbing the right hill. So just because you think you're going up in whatever career you're, you're uh, currently in, um, you, you, you need to be asking yourself, do I ultimately want to be at the top of this hill? And so I asked myself, okay, say I, I crushed it. I, I end up getting the investment banking job of my dreams. I work in finance for 20 years and I reach the top of that hill. Am I going to be happy once I'm at the top of that hill? And after doing a little bit of self-discovery, I didn't think so. Um, started looking at some other things and, and actually um, coincidentally uh, met Tom Daly, the CEO and founder of, of Me Prism, uh, at what, I suppose it was summer after my junior year, started talking to him about some of the things that he was working on, uh, became way more interested and excited about uh, uh, what, what he was working on and, and, and simultaneously uh, was actually writing a research paper about Cambridge Analytica, and, um, that, that scandal um, with, with Facebook. So I, I already had a little bit of an interest in, in the, the topic of um, data privacy, data ownership, and um, data monetization, but um, you know, hadn't really considered it as a potential career um, until I talked to Tom, heard, heard about the company that he was starting, and uh, kind of just took things from there. I, I worked at MePRISM through my senior year of college. I wrote my thesis uh, on a topic that was extremely relevant to MePRISM. Uh, and and basically started full time as soon as I graduated. Wow! And now you're the chief strategy officer. So yes. So one of the one of the great things that? one of the great things about working at a startup it, when there's not a lot of people, title job titles are just flying around, so you can pick whatever you want. <laughs> and, uh, you just you just pick something that's general enough uh, that will allow you to do. Uh, all of the different things that actually need to be done. Right. So uh, I, I wouldn't read too too much in the job <laughs> title. Well, see, you know, CSO sometimes is chief sales officer. And then when you said CIO, usually that's chief information officer. But of course, depending on your where you're at, right? The chief investment. That's right. It's always the chief, there's the chief of something, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. And 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 every industry loves its acronym. Yeah, 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 yeah. The the TLAs, the three letter acronyms that are so ubiquitous in both 
industry and the military. Military sometimes has six letter acronyms, which you're like, huh? What? Yeah, you know, yeah, like, that's 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 too much for me. I'm still figuring out uh, figuring out the three letter ones. <laughs> and so you said you went to uh, Middlebury College. Yeah, that's right. So that's, uh, that's that's in Vermont, is it? I'm not. I don't remember. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a small liberal arts college in Vermont. Uh, Twenty eight hundred students. Quaint little town in uh, in the Northeast, and um, great great place to go to school. Um, but not not a, not a college that uh, a lot of people are, have heard of outside of the Northeast. Well, didn't they have some sort of controversy there about some? Wow, what was his name? Yeah, Charles Murray. There's Charles Murray, and then there's someone else. There was, uh, God, the, one of the Weinstein brothers used to teach there or something. Uh, I don't think one of the – I know who you're talking about. I don't think one of the Weinstein brothers taught at Middlebury, but Middlebury did get swept up in the whole free speech on college campus controversy. Yes. Um, when I was, I was a freshman and actually wasn't even at the speech. So I can't give you any, uh, firsthand, uh, firsthand knowledge, but Charles Murray, who was the author of, uh, the bell curve yep. came and spoke at Middlebury. Yep. Um, and there was a, uh, a little bit of, a a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> there was a little bit of a pushback from the, uh, some of the students and, yeah, it turned into I think borderline a riot on campus. Yeah, uh, and one of the one of the professors actually got got attacked, and it was yeah. A, I think it was the dean was that got, got hit in the head or something. If I That's recall. right. Yeah, yeah. I was yeah. just fascinated. Well, the reason I bring this up is just because perception. You know, so right. you when you hear Middlebury, you you literally depending on where you are in the world. I mean, again, you get boots on the ground. So you sort of know the culture, right? I don't know the culture from anything. Um, and so when you hear it, you hear complete, like, like anything, right? Like, unless you know someone there, you really can't believe anything you read because <laughs> it's going to yeah. be like some crazy and like, you know what? Most people aren't like that. Like clearly you have to dig in a little bit. And it's, what's fascinating is because at, at me prism, you know, when, when you guys are looking at, um, your data, who you are as a person online, just seems to be like this very nebulous thing. And you see this even with the acquisition of Twitter, at least potentially, you know, Elon Musk taking it private, all of this like swirling around on like, who are you online and who who actually owns who you are online, which is why I'm so fascinated with this sort of stuff, because I interviewed another guy, the founder of Tiki, Mm-hmm. which is similar to what you guys are doing. I'm not exactly sure. That's why I want you to kind of go through it. But I wanted to kind of, reason why I wanted to bring in where you came, went to school and the perception of it is because that's a huge problem online because I don't control that to some degree. And so I'm curious with me, Prism, how are you guys handling that? Because this is going to be a big deal. I mean, this is going to be a big deal even in the metaverse, whatever the hell that's going to be, whatever, 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 you know, flavor of the day that is. But why don't you kind of take me through like your thesis on how you got to be me prism, what you guys are talking about, why it's important. Um, because I think this, we're at like, we're at a tipping point for this. Yeah. Was. Yeah. No, I, I, those are, those are some great points. And I, I think, as you said, it's, it's the, these are the sorts of questions that 
people are just now starting to ask. And I think it did really start in 2016 with Cambridge Analytica. And then uh, there's a little bit of a dead period. And then I, I don't know if you ever saw the movie, The Social Dilemma. Yes. That brought, yes. A, atten- brought a lot of attention to it. And then you have all and these it, other free speech issues online well, swirling around. Yeah, there's free speech. There's election fraud. Right. fraud. Yeah, I mean, fr- I don't know if it's election fraud because I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. But clearly propaganda propped up with social media platforms, right? In the echo chamber. And this is the thing that I really, this is the reason why I want to bring it up because as entrepreneurs, right? Like we have, we get a pass into a certain degree to go out and try to invent stuff. Right. So society goes like, go take a risk, go figure it out. Well, part of that is not necessarily, you know, optimizing for the monetization. It's like, what's, what does this all mean? So I'm just, yeah, take us through it and let's just, yeah, see where we go. Sure. Sure. Well, I, I think, uh, to, to, to start on your, your first point about kind of, kind of, um, how technology is influencing things like social issues or politics. The, the, the thing that I always like to say is that technology isn't inherently good or bad. It's just a tool, right. And it makes things more efficient. So whatever it is that, you're doing, if you use technology for that task, that task just becomes a lot more efficient. You can do it much more quickly. And I think that's the easiest way that I can conceptualize how technology and social media is influencing uh, politics and these these social issues, because I think something like uh, propaganda, that's a great example. Propaganda has existed I don't want to say forever, but probably just about oh, as long as, as, long as humans as have existed. Could, we, as long as we could talk. I mean, it's fundamental right. to what we do. I mean, and of course, governments and are good at it. And right. And so it probably started with people, uh, I, I don't know, gossiping to each other in the tribe and passing around stone tablets, maybe. And then in World War II, <laughs> it was dropping off. Uh, you know, pamphlets with um, uh, you know, bombarding entire hillsides with pamphlets. So, you know, during our uh, War of Independence, the brochures, right? That they That's would right. Put, like, right, being taken around by horse, right? So, yeah, exactly. Uh, I think so. So it's, it's always existed. It's just that now it can be distributed at a rate that's. Uh, incomparable to some of those previous distribution methods. So you can have somebody distribute propaganda to almost every single American thousands of times a day for extremely cheap. And that has, as we've seen, large impacts on uh, people's perception because ultimately the internet is, is really just about distribution of information. Um, so how does that relate to your data and your online profile? Well, the data is right now really the thing that allows, uh, that allows companies and corporations and politicians to do that, um, to, to distribute information most efficiently. So if, uh, if it weren't for our data, politicians could still go out and put, you know, ads up on the internet. 
Um, but they would be very general and probably more expensive because they, they, they wouldn't be able to uh, target people effectively and um, they, they wouldn't be able to put it in areas where it's going to get the most attention and the most engagement. So what, what our data is currently being used for is to target uh, that distribution of information in a way that uh, maximizes engagement and also maximizes the chance that we will perform a certain action. So if you look at the um, political ads, for example, even though it's a very controversial topic, I think uh, most of us, when we're scrolling through Facebook or Instagram, we see ads and don't really think anything of it. I, I, I mean, I find them annoying, but I'm certainly not uh, the, the type of person that's clicking on lots of, lots of political ads when I'm using social media and in general, try to stay off social media as much as possible. Right. But there's some small subset of the population that is going to find that whatever that specific ad very impactful and, 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 and our data is what allows companies to target those people and to mobilize them for a certain action or, or behavior. So even if it's just 2% of the population, that's enough to, uh, uh, you know, sway an election or, you know, create a lot of stir online. And for sure. And, and so I think that's kind of the danger of using this technology, um, you know, to distribute information that is, uh, that is potentially so impactful for something like an election. So I, I know that was kind of high level and maybe no, we no. can get, get more into, uh, what, what your data actually is, how it can be used. Well, but- I mean, no, it's a good point to lay the foundation because like you said, the Cambridge Analytica thing in 2016, just as an example of, so using your data against you. Right. Because it wasn't so some smart person figured out, oh, if I want to influence people, I want to get my propaganda into their world. I need to insulate them in a bubble of information that they don't see the other side. This is what I think is the classical propaganda thing. Right. Like and you see this all the time. Right. You only. You know, I mean, I live in San Francisco, right? I'm in the bubble of the bubble, right? Like no one, you know, no one's talking about like other things other than you're either progressive, progressive or you're liberal, right? I, you know, there's no like, there's no shade in between. And then the progressives and the liberals fight each other all the time for whatever reason, you know, they can never get their act together anyway, just, just general, right? But they stoke that flame and in the bubble, and I feel it like in the bubble here, I talk to someone in Texas or someone in Louisiana or someone that has a different opinion than mine, I can see the difference. And that's what they stoked. And the reason why having your control over your data is because they're doing this without your permission. Like you don't know. I mean, you get the idea. I mean, and you know, my parents are boomers or what are called the lost generation. So, you know, they turn on the TV and they're watching all this propaganda and I can hear it when I talk to my mom about stuff. I'm like, that's not true, but that's all she reads. And so 
amplify that by a thousand and you get these things because they're literally using it against you. And I'm curious how me prism is trying to approach this because they also not only use it against you to stoke your outrage and literally like outrage is what interacts outrage is engagement, right? For them. Right. But they also sell that to people to market to you. So if you've ever searched on the internet, like I'm looking, it's silly, but I'm, I'm into like uh, citizen science and stuff. So I wanted to get a weather station. Like I'm going to get a weather station, Be you know, like, so I look up weather station, right? And every time I go on any social media platform, they're popping up weather stations. I'm like, how do they know? Right. Right. Know? Right. Yeah. So I, I think our perspective is very similar to what you're talking about. It's, it's not that the usage of, any of this is right or wrong. It's more that transparency needs to be introduced into the system so that individuals can make informed decisions about what we actually view as people's property. So that's the easiest way I can describe our view of personal data is that it's the individual's property. It's personal data for a reason. It can only be about that person that it is referenced by the data, right? So my data could not be your data. Your data cannot be my data. And therefore that all of this information is me, it's my property. And really it's just the digital rep- representation of who I am. So d- what is data? It's really just information about you or, or me. It's and 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 to take it even a step further, it's information that can't be separated from you. It's like it's your height. You know, I'm five eleven. That's that that's something that's a physical fact that is is just a piece of information that's stored about me online, right? Um. So if you if you think about data in that way, where it's the personal property of the individual, then it should also be that individual's decision who they share that information with, uh, how much they share it for, what that information can be used for. All, all of those different things should be ultimately that individual's decision. It's sort of the same as any other piece of property that you may have. Like if I, uh, I, I own my car, if Facebook came over and started tootling around in my car without telling me, that would be illegal, right? But if, if they do that with my data, it's, you know, it's data, it's kind of this ambiguous abstract thing. So it seems different, but really it's, it's, it's kind of the same. Um, so what our technology does is it allows you to um, collect and secure your personal data from a variety of sources online. And we hope to continue adding more data sources. So uh, the grand vision is that any piece of information that exists about you online you can store securely in what we call your data bank. And then uh, the software gives you insights and, and, and the ability to explore what that information actually is so that you can see what is data? What is my data? What are some different ways that that data can be, can be used? Um, and then lastly, it gives you tools to both control it. So uh, who can access it? And then also, um, uh, tools to share it. So if you do want to share it with a certain party for a certain purpose, you're allowed to, uh, you're allowed to share it with them 
for that specific purpose and it gives you um, uh, uh, legal rights over that data when when you choose to share it. So our hope is, you know, grand vision, but eventually anytime anyone wants to use your information online, they have to go directly to you uh, to get permission to use it. And they have to tell you exactly what they want to use it for. And they can only use it for that purpose, that purpose only. And if they don't uh, uh, abide by the, the um, rules that you've laid out for your data, um, you have legal rights to uh, either sue them or um, uh, um, basically, basically um, prosecute uh, the, the individual that mistreated you and your data. So um, that's, that's basically it. Technology that allows you to uh, secure, learn, and profit from, from your data. Interesting. Secure, learn, and profit. Hmm. Yeah, that's what uh, that other company, Tiki, was doing Tiki. as well. Well, I, 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 I think it's great that there's so, much, so many uh, companies that are now entering the space and there's lots of innovation here because it's a completely new world on the internet if you think about data in this way. And there's all sorts of opportunity for for different um, different companies, I think, to enter the space and um, and and help reshape how uh, data is is used is used online. Because you know, if you think about it, data is really the thing that powers these gigantic Web two companies. Uh, web two, the tech, Web the three, lingo. the whole thing, right? The whole thing. That's <laughs> all right. of it. And 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 so I think as as uh, you know, individuals, we just need to ask ourselves, do we want to be in control of that information or do we want to leave that information that do we want to trust other companies or corporations or politicians to, uh, to, to control that information for us? Yeah. I wonder, well, I mean, what's this akin to, I mean, you mentioned something about like private pro like I have a car. I don't want Facebook messing with my car. Um, is there any other types of corollaries other than that? Because I mean, everyone understands like I own a like I have a physical object. There's case law on that, obviously. This seems like it's a lot different. I mean, are, are you guys running into kind of issues with, oh, there's really no laws on the books, or as I think the most famous line that Zuckerberg said during that Cambridge Analytica trial which pissed everyone off was like, well, you opted in. And he's like, yeah, I really yeah. read the software license agreement. I really read the terms of use. No, the thousand page terms of use that some lawyer, you know, whipped up because they're going to CYA. Like, no, right. no one read that. Come on. Really? Right. Well, no. and, and it, with all sorts of other legal uh, agreements, it's not just consent that's required. It's actually informed consent. So even if somebody, uh, I, I, I don't, uh, off the top of my head, it's hard to think of a, a, be a better example, but um, there's all sorts of, 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 of legal situations where the individual who's, who's entering into the agreement needs to be sober, needs to be uh, uh, informed about the, exactly all of the details in the agreement and just checking a box online does not satisfy the, the, um, 
standards of informed consent. And I think particularly when it comes to something that's as private as your personal information, um, that that's, that's especially important. I, I think it's interesting thinking about corollaries for data because I try to put it in terms that is that are more under, understandable, like your car, your house, or, or things that are your personal property. But I think you're 100% right that it's actually completely unique as, as an asset. It's, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it, it's part, of, part of why it's unique is because if you share your, your data with a, a company for a specific purpose, that doesn't mean that you're actually transferring ownership of it to that company. Um, it's still yours and you still own it. And it's also, it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist in your, uh, in your own software, your own, um, uh, digital, digital, uh, ownership device, whatever that may be. And that company, if you don't have rules to stop them from sharing it with somebody else, they could take that exact same asset, share it with somebody else. Now there's three copies of it, right? And yeah, the proliferation and so, of it seems out of control. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's one of the reasons why our company has focused so much on the control and securitization of data is because we want to help um, actually just reduce the supply of personal data online as a whole. Like one of the issues right now is data is so accessible to companies and we enter into all sorts of agreements beyond just Google and Facebook that result in us sharing our information with different companies that we don't, that we don't even realize. Um, and, and so I think having more, uh, not just control over where, who you share that information with and, and the purpose for sharing it, but also control over the companies that you've already shared it with. That you don't really realize you shared it with and, having mechanisms to uh, make them either delete that information or, or, or give back to you, to, to you um, is, is, is really important. Yeah. Gosh, this is such a sticky thing. Cause a lot of the growth of online and targeting of ads and all that sort of stuff does rely on this almost ubiquitous, access to user data. I mean, you sort of see, see a lot of this stuff with the Apple stuff, right? Right. You know, Apple sort of shutting down the cookie tracking. And so as a, um, you know, as, as someone that needs to market to someone, you, you really can't like the ability to target and retarget, I think is going to go away. Like, I can't can't see a world where it's just not going to be starting to be locked down more and more. I mean, you see that with again with the with the Apple thing. I mean, I think it was like you had to opt in for sharing your data, and like ninety five percent of the people didn't opt in. <laughs> right, it's right. Like, yeah, that was I found uh, that hilarious. Well, yeah, and most- it's, but yeah, it's just like almost. I wouldn't say you got tricked, but yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah, I so I actually do think there's a way to walk the line. I I think it's going to be 
a little bit of a challenge to find exactly where that line is, but there's there's a lot of research that suggests that individual individuals do actually want personalization online and they want to be able to share information with specific companies or specific brands for specific use cases. They just don't want to share all of the information. They want to know what that information is being uh, used for. Uh, and they also want, you know, just more control over which companies that they're, they're actually sharing, sharing that information with. Um, so I think, I think the future is going to be a little bit more collaborative between companies and individuals. Right now, it's mainly collaborative between just really between companies and publishers. So you have most companies, I like to say, don't actually own the relationship with their customers. That's it's true. really the, That's the true. publisher, it's Facebook, Google. They're the ones that own the relationship with customers online. And then most companies and brands uh, have a relationship with the platform. So right. I, I, I run all my targeted advertising through Facebook, but it's really the Facebook customers um, that, that are being targeted. It's not um, the, the customers of that brand or company. So I think long-term, it's going to be companies interacting directly with individuals and individuals sharing parts of their information with those companies for specific purposes. Um, and I think the, the challenge is just going to be how do you bring that how do you bring that customer service and salesmanship that is a little bit easier in the real world to uh, the, the digital space? Um, there's a, another example that I, I like to use is about um, imagine you're the, you walk into a coffee shop and it's, it's pretty normal if you have an interaction with the, the cashier and you, you order something the first time, maybe then you go back the cashier asks you how your day was. You say your day was great. And you know maybe you're doing, uh, oh, but I really just love these chocolate chip cookies. It picked such a pick me up or something like that. And so then the next time you go in, the, the, the cashier says, oh, do you want one of your favorite chocolate chip cookies? And you say, yeah, that's great. And you know, pretty soon you have a regular order and they know a little bit about you and they can start recommending different product, other products that you might like. Hey, we just got this new batch of uh, uh, coffee in that's very similar to the one that you like. Would you like to try it? So, and that sort of relationship is really um, easy to understand when you're actually going in and having these interactions in person. Um, but online, it's kind of hard to cultivate that. So the the and and if you think about the reverse example, where if you walked into the coffee shop and the cashier had been stalking your Facebook profile, knew everything about you, knew uh, every every single little detail about who you were. And they said, you know, I know you went to, you went to this high school and graduated this year. And so therefore I'm going to predict that you want this, this cup of coffee. You'd be, you'd be like, wow, that's so creepy. A little I, creepy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. Agreed. So, um, I, I I think there's a way to bring the internet a little bit closer to the first example where you where companies are developing a relationship with their customers um, rather than kind of tracking uh, tracking them uh, without the understanding and and um, full 
informed consent of customers and then trying to influence their purchasing or um, social pur- purchasing habits or social behaviors based yeah. on that information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Huh. Oh, man. Kind of like it all comes back to the making the personal relationship that you kind of know, like, and trust someone as opposed to the spray and pray, or I don't know. It, it's just, it's just so interesting because, you know, you start to see the ineffectiveness of like, like say ads, just as an example. So I'm a big believer in content over ads, like just full stop. Mm-hmm. I think if you're under a certain amount of revenue, like ads are a waste of your money. Just, and I think that number is anywhere between if you don't have between four and $10 million of revenue, like ads, they're not going to work. People will disagree with me on that, but generally it's probably better to build to your point, relationships with people through telling them what you're about, your content, like really putting yourself out there and actually doing the harder work. Cause I always think, again, my opinion that, you know, digital ads are the lazy marketer. They're just lazy marketing, honestly, because right. while they are effective and wonderful and yeah, you can, you, it, the reason why people love them so much is that there's a, you know, the Rojas, right? There's literally an ROI on that thing and you can quantify it and everyone loves the data. And then you talk about like real marketing or like, you know, brand building, PR, marketing, strategic communications. Everyone's like, show me the ROI. And in some cases you can't like they try, but you know, what's the ROI of you coming on my podcast? I can't tell you that, but well, but it's probably a good idea. You talk about this stuff because someone may, someone's like, even you guys, I think have your own podcast. Like what's the ROI really yeah. on that? Like you can't, it's, I think it's like table stakes to play the game. Right. And this whole idea of building those deeper bonds and those deeper relationships, I, if you could pull that off, I think that's a, it's a noble endeavor because it's happening now. Like you see these walled garden communities where you, if you're a marketer, you throw money over the wall and you don't know what the hell's going on. Honestly, yeah. you have no clue. Then they give you a report and you're like, ah, do I really believe it? Ah. Well, right. And we, we've had this conversation internally a lot recently uh, that a lot of the ROI, shall we say, is kind of obfuscated by the metrics and the data. And the it's like, oh yeah, you got a lot of, your impressions are great and the clicks are great and the, look at all this engagement you're getting. And, and then, and you try to figure out, okay, so, well, how many people actually bought the thing or how many people actually uh, downloaded the app or how, and, and you try to get to whatever that key outcome that you're looking for is. And it's really hard to figure out when it's all about impressions and engagement and clicks uh, because it's not really about, uh, an outcome. And so I think thematically, we've also seen a bigger trend towards affiliate based marketing over the impression based marketing. And I think we'll continue to see that as par- partially as a result of what, what you're talking about, where people are realizing that a conversion in uh, digital marketing lingo isn't necessarily uh, always a conversion in business lingo and 
uh, I think that's part of why you've seen more interest in the affiliate, uh, um, the affiliate strategies where it's all out, all of the payment is outcome based um, versus with a lot of the kind of traditional digital marketing tools, if you can even call, if you can even call Facebook and Instagram and well, and I mean, traditional at this I point. I would say that's probably, I don't know. I mean, that's actually a really good point. Like, like I would, maybe that's like Rev 1.0 or version one of that. Because see, what's fascinating to your point about affiliate, uh, you know, pay for results, which is generally what people kind of want to go through. Everyone wants everything to be metricized and pay for results, right? Well, there's certain things you just can't do that with. Like, again, there's buy-in. You know, if you have a business, you have to have accounting, you have to have all these sort of things. The ROI on that is like, well, if I don't have it, I fail. If I do have it, I'm functional. And every type of business function has that. There's a certain amount of things you just have to do Again, it's table stakes to play the game. If you're not, you don't have a website, are you really real, right? If you don't have, right. You know, like, right, you know what I mean? So these are now table stakes. And so what's interesting about, again, this movement towards more metrics, to, to your point, um, it kind of gets lost. I think things really get lost in the noise. Like you can't growth hack everything. <laughs> I, I mean, and I also think that the the age, the version 1.0 of the legacy Facebook, Google, even TikTok now is starting to become more, it's just all arbitrage now. It's getting to the point where you have to have more money to play the game. Like if you want to have right. effective Facebook and Google ads, you got to have, it's a lot of money. What would you rather spend that money on? Developing a real one-on-one relationship with the customer and doing it the hard, which is way harder, like by order of magnitude, right. harder to do that. Or are you just going to spray and pray and throw money at it, which you've got automation to do, but you're going to, you're willing to spend at least a million bucks a year on doing that or more like you can't. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it's such a good point because it's, it, it's, it's almost like just the oversaturation of those strategies has really diminished the value. Like I, I have to imagine that when you were the first ad- advertiser on Facebook, it was, Oh, you cleaned up. Godsend. Yeah, you cleaned up first day. First, just imagine you you figured out the Amazon algorithm for advertising. Right. You cleaned up, right? And, and now, now everyone knows. <laughs> now everyone knows. There's all sorts of blogs and classes and uh, companies that are all built around optimizing these things. And yeah, you're to to get your ad to stand out amongst the thousands of other ads that an individual seeing every day on these impression-based platforms is really challenging. Um, so yeah, almost impossible without the money, you know? Right. Right. And I, I, I think some of that too is going to become obvious as consumers push back. Like we did a study recently where we found that the average person sees around 5,000 ads a day. That's that's crazy. <laughs> that, yeah, I, I, really? Yeah. Five thousand ads. Yeah. So if 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 you're one of those five thousand, how do you get your product or ad to stand out amongst everybody else? I I just I don't see I don't see how you can do it. I mean, I think so. My, there's there's my my hypothesis. 
that I think is going to, what's going to happen. I, this is, this is my thing. Now, again, people will disagree with me, but my, my whole deal is I think personally we're back to the age of marketing and storytelling and com- yeah. product is commodity. Anyone can build a product. I don't care what it is. Honestly, you can get anything built. That doesn't matter anymore. It matters about your brand and your storytelling and how you're reaching. It, it matters on how you're actually reaching the people that could care. Because to your point, if let's just say, you know, Willis, you're full of it and it's really not 5,000. Let's just say it's 500. Let's say you're off by an order of magnitude. 500 ads, you're awake, what, 12 hours a day? Is still a shit ton of stuff to look yeah, at. It's I mean, oh it's my like, gosh. I mean, thankfully, as we've been talking, we haven't seen any ads, but you know yeah, what I mean? It's yeah. like insane, insane. So, no, I think I am not sure exactly how this is all going to work, but I, you know what? It's just what a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate your time. Good luck with me, Prism. Talk about, how about fighting the good fight, you know? I, I don't know that we, we have everything figured out yet, but uh, that's that's part of the fun of being an entrepreneur, right? Is you get to figure figure it out in real time and uh, build the plan as you fly it, as they say, right? As they say. Thanks again. Stay safe and uh, we'll be in touch. Thanks so much, Will, for being on the show and talking about this most important issue. It's very pressing in the world right now. Your data, who owns it? And what you're going to do with it. So, wow, pretty cool. I'm glad you guys are trying to figure that out. Now, as promised, here are some actionable insights that I learned from my interview with Will. Will credits reading Climbing the Wrong Hill by Chris Dixon as being instrumental in his decision to change course from the path he thought he would follow. When he got a clear vision of where he wanted to go, a path opened up to him. So, you know, as entrepreneurs, like I always say, this is a tough job. <laughs> and, uh, you know, sometimes we're getting it for the wrong reasons. Um, and then hopefully we find the right reasons. As I always like to say, it's not about the fame, prestige, fortune, and all that sort of stuff. It's about this independent life that completes you. So really ask the questions of, do you, what do you really want to do? Are you really on the right path? Are you in this for the right reasons? Um, like what Will did. It was pretty, pretty powerful. If you or your company currently use ads or other methods that depend on tracking and collecting data without permission, ask if this is something that's most useful to your long-term goals. Consumers are already expressing a desire to have more control over their data. Will predicts that in the future, the sharing of data will be more collaborative between consumers and companies. Focus instead on providing good content and building a relationship with your potential customers. I, yeah, I totally, totally believe this. I think, well, I mean, (laughs) I think all the digital ad stuff's being arbitraged down to almost the fact that you just have to have a ton of money in order to play. And as all these third-party cookies go away, really, you're going to go back to basics, back to the, the absolute basics of sales and marketing, right? Get to know the customer, really have a one-on-one relationship and not rely on third parties to do that. So maybe... Me Prism is a good model to kind of be able to reach out to folks. But if you're not building an audience and a loyalty uh, right now with your customer base, uh, chances are it's going to be challenged. So I think the best way to do that 
um, is through good content and building good community. So ask yourself, other than ads, how are you attracting customers? How are you building communities? How are you serving your customer base? How are you really understanding the needs of your customer? Because in the future, those are the companies that are going to win. That's just the way it's going to be. Or it's going to be super expensive. You know, cost of acquisitions is going to be out of, out of control. So anyway, there you have it. Those were the actionable insights I learned from my awesome interview with Will. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learned something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better, as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits, values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur, and frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA, and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.